Welcome to this gathering of Covenant Hope Church. I'm uh, Mark Donald. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope, and I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. We'll be concluding our series in Daniel today. As you turn there, I want you to consider this question. What is wrong with our world? Why is this world, as wonderful as it is, why is it also so incredibly broken, so destructive, so violent and hostile? I mean, you just have to open up the news app on your phone, whether it's BBC or CNN, whatever it is, and you're confronted by the fact that there's something terribly wrong with this world that we live in. In fact, you don't even need to go to the news app. You can just go to social media apps and you'll be confronted by the reality that something is drastically, terribly wrong. What is it? What is at the bottom of all that's wrong with the world? One story has it that a witty British philosopher responded to an article in a Times newspaper posing this very question, and he wrote in response to the article, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly. I resonate with that, don't you? But what is the root of the problem? What's the root of all of our problems? What's behind it all? And what is the solution? Is there one? Today we'll consider Daniel's final apocalyptic vision. And we'll consider the answers to these questions that we find in Daniel's chapter 10 through uh, 12. And I think the answers that we'll find there actually might surprise all of us in some ways. Even those of us who've been Christians for a long time and think we know the answers to these questions, I think you'll be surprised by what we see in Daniel uh, in his final vision. Before we look at his vision, let's go to the Lord one more time and ask Him for His help as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. You are perfect. You are holy. You are righteous. You are all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. And so we give you praise. And Lord, you are good in that you have spoken to us and you have given us your word. And now as we consider it, as I preach it, Lord, we pray. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask that your Spirit would open up our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your Word, and that as we look into it, that we would be transformed, that we'd be changed, and that we would love you more, that we'd have faith in your Son, and that we would obey your commands until He comes back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we conclude our series in the book of Daniel, and we'll be considering the final and the longest and most detailed vision recorded for us in the book of Daniel. 
So if you haven't already, turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, and we'll be looking at 10, 11, and 12. And while we won't have time today, unfortunately, to, uh, for me to read all of them, uh, it will be helpful to have it open in front of you because I will be directing us to specific verses, making references to them throughout this section. As we study these last three chapters, there's three points to this sermon. The first point is the great conflict behind our conflicts. We see that in Daniel chapter 10 and the very first verse of chapter 11. The great conflict behind our conflicts. In Daniel chapter 10 verse 1, it tells us that this final vision was revealed to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus. That was the king of Persia. And so this was two years after King Cyrus had decreed for the Jews to return to and restore the city of Jerusalem. Remember, these Jews had been taken into captivity almost 70 years before, and now they were being sent back. And Daniel here in this very first verse succinctly summarizes his last vision for us. He says, and the word, that is the word of the vision, the message that he received was true. And it was a great conflict. Many words could be said, and I'm going to share many words with you this afternoon. And I read many words in many commentaries this week. And so we could say a lot about this final revelation, but Daniel summarizes it in just three words. It was a great conflict. Daniel's visions from chapter 7 through all the way till the end of the book, chapter 12, they have been visions where there's been a curtain that's been pulled back. A curtain is being pulled back to show us the world from God's vantage point, from His perspective. So, in fact, what we're seeing in these visions is God's eye view of all of existence, both this world and the things that are unseen. All that is happening and going on in the unfolding of history must be understood in light of what the Bible says is going on behind the curtain, the things that we don't see. And that's why Daniel says that and that's what he means by saying that he understood the word and he understood the vision. He is seeing things unseen. God reveals what's going on behind the curtain in chapter 10 in order to prepare Daniel for the truth that he'll hear in chapters 11 and 12. When Daniel received the vision, he was in the midst of three weeks of mourning, he says. He says he, he wasn't eating delicacies, so he was doing something of a fast, and he wouldn't anoint himself with oil, which would have been important in dry regions to, to make sure that you're comfortable, that your skin doesn't crack. But we're told that he, he abstained from those things. And while we're not told exactly why he was mourning for three weeks, it was most likely because of what was going on in Jerusalem. Things were not going well in Jerusalem, even though two years had gone by since the first exiles had started to return home. The rebuild of the city and the walls and the temple had ground to a halt. And so Daniel was grieving for his people. 
Daniel mentions that he mourned for three weeks until the arrival of a dazzlingly glorious man. And he begins that description of this man in verse 5. Daniel says he was at the bank of the river Tigris in Babylon. There were other people with him when this glorious man showed up. But his arrival was so staggering that Daniel's friends fled. They fled in terror. They fled to hide themselves, even though they didn't see the vision. And even even Daniel himself is overwhelmed by this vision. Verse 8 literally says that Daniel's splendor was turned into ruin. When he heard the man's words, he virtually dropped dead before him. There's no surprise as to why they reacted this way when we consider the stunning description of this heavenly being. So, look there at verses 5 and 6. This is the first time in the book that Daniel has actually described what, this, what any heavenly being looks like. So, just for a moment, try to picture in your mind this description from verses 5 and 6. The man is dressed in linen robes. Linen robes would have been associated with the priests, so it was kind of a, an idea of holiness. But this, this man is more than a priest. He's belted with a sash of gold. His body is made with something that looks like beryl. Now, m- many of you probably don't know what beryl is. I, I didn't know until I researched it this week. But beryl is the crystal that comes in all kinds of dazzling colors. It's what emeralds are. They're the green version of beryl, and so, but it comes in so many different colors, red and blue and green and gold, and light shines through this crystal and dazzles. It's beautiful. And so imagine what it would have looked like when we're told that light was shining from His face. His face was like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs gleamed like they were made of burnished bronze. This was truly and literally breathtaking. And when he spoke, this man's voice was like the thundering of a great crowd all speaking together in unison. So no wonder Daniel fell face down to the ground before this man. This description, especially when we compare it with other parts of Scripture, like Revelation chapter 1, it seems very much like the description there of the risen Christ. And it's left many to believe that this is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This is quite possible. And He was accompanied by an angelic host with him. At least two messengers are there with him as we look to chapter 12. And so, this is very well could be an appearance of the second person of the Trinity before he took on flesh. Daniel's reminded once again by the voice of God's great love for him. Look in verse 11 and verse 19. He's, he's told twice that you are greatly loved, just like we heard last week. He's called on not to fear, but to be strong and of good courage. Words that echo God's words to Joshua through Moses. When Joshua was going to lead his people into battle. 
into a conflict to claim the promised land. And once again, Daniel is informed that from the beginning of his humble prayers, his words to God in mourning, God had sent a message. But unlike last week in chapter 9, when Daniel was interrupted in the middle of his prayer, we're told that there was a delay. So look down at verse 13 with me. The angel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, exactly three weeks, just the same amount of time that Daniel has been mourning and praying. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for he was left, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. This is an important phrase. It's talking about the last days, the end times. For the vision is for days yet to come. What's happening here, which we've seen over and over in Daniel, is that the veil is being pulled back on a universe unseen. There aren't only heavenly beings that do God's bidding. There are spiritual forces, enemies of God, who rage and war against Him as well. And they've withstood this messenger. And not only did they withstand him, he needed heavenly backup. And so the chief prince or the archangel Michael was sent to defend him. What we see here is actually the very same scheme that Satan has been pulling from the very beginning. Satan works to keep his people from hearing and believing the truth from God and his word. Whether it's in a message from an angel or whether it's in the book that we all have sitting on our laps. The Bible teaches us that there is much more going on in this world than meets the eye. And while that's not often the emphasis of our sermons or even the passages of Scripture that we look at, we can fall into the, into the trap of ignoring passages and parts like this and ignoring the truths that we see. We're in fact trained to do it. We can adopt a very naturalistic worldview. A worldview that's built on the idea that unless you can see something with your eyes, touch it with your hands, test it, measure it, it can't be true. Or at least we can't be sure. But we must realize, we must realize that our universe and the realities on earth are not all that is going on. Not just physical matter. No, there's a great conflict happening in the heavenly places. And this conflict impacts the realities that we see in the world around us. Look down with me at verse 20 of chapter 10. The angel says, I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. He's going back to continue the conflict. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come too. These were two of the kingdoms that we had heard about that were going to rise up after Babylon. Of course, the, the Persian Empire was already there, but even now we see that there was a prince behind the ki kingdom of Greece as well. Satan and his forces are at work in our world. They're, they're, go they're going on behind the scenes, influencing. We've already seen this in Daniel, that Satan stands behind the beastly kingdoms of our world. Satan and his satanic forces are influencing, deceiving, and tempting people and nations. 
ever since he tempted our first father, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, when he encouraged him and Eve to rebel against God and to seek to be like gods themselves. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul encourages the Ephesian church to, he says this in verses 10 through 12, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not at war with flesh and blood. No, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places princes and rulers and authorities like the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Brothers and sisters, we don't go looking around every corner for demons, but we must be aware of their existence and their reality. That's why God has told us about them in His Word. We must be on guard. We must be aware that that we are all, each and every one of you in this room, is part of a conflict. Not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his forces of evil. So let me ask you, do you live as if you're in a battle? Or do you live as if you are in peacetime? Are you arming yourself with strength from the Lord and the strength of His might? Just imagine for a moment if you walked into the middle of a war zone and you had no armor or weaponry with you. How long do you think you'd last? How devastating would that be? In light of this battle, Paul tells us to therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We are all part of a spiritual war. What has God given us for this fight? Well, there's many answers, but I want to encourage you to consider three things that God has given us for the fight. He's given us His church. We don't fight this battle, this war, alone. We do it side by side with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our community here as a church, as a community of faith, helps us to defend against the schemes of the devil, to fight against his temptations together. And it helps us to press forward in pursuing the Lord and seeking to fight the good fight of faith. So if you are on the fringe of Christian community, whether that's uh, you're a member of this church and you're on the fringes, or whether you're a part of another church, no matter where you are committed, I want to encourage you to press inwards into Christian community. Don't hang on the edges. This world is a battleground, and those who are most isolated from the faithful brothers and sisters God's put in their lives are most easily targeted. God's given us His church. The second thing that God has given us is His Word. God hasn't only given us defensive armor, but He's given us offensive armor too. He's given us the sword of the Spirit. 
God's Word is what we use to fight against the evil one and his lies. We fight his lies and the deceitfulness of sin with the Word of truth. And we fuel our faithfulness by feeding our faith with the promises of God's Word, especially the good news, the gospel. God's given us His church, He's given us His Word, but finally, He's also given us His ear. This is something that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. I'd encourage you to go back through the book of Daniel again and look at all the places where Daniel prays. There's many. But Daniel was disciplined in prayer. We were told that he prayed three times a day, and we were also told that he was dependent in prayer, desperate in prayer. Just like last week, we saw that he was pleading with God for mercy and grace, asking for forgiveness, and asking for God to act in power to save. Daniel is a model of, to us all of prayerful dependence on God. Don't neglect the weaponry that God has given you for the fight. Take it up, brothers and sisters. Take up these weapons together and fight the good fight of faith. Before Daniel can even receive the message, the revelation from God that he needs, he's re- he, he, is, he needs God's repeated strengthening. At first, he's so shocked that he falls down f- flat on the ground, face forward, he can't even get up. Then once he's lifted up, he's mute, he can't even speak, and he needs to be touched again. And then finally, he's, he's upheld by the Lord. And so, three, with three tender touches, God gives Daniel the strength that he needs to hear the message. And so, vi- finally, Daniel's ready to hear that message. But conflict isn't only going on behind the scenes, it's also right here too. And that's our second point. Point to the warring kingdoms of this world. We see this in chapter 11 verses 2 to the end of the chapter. Not only does God pull back the curtain on things unseen, but He also pulls back the curtain on things yet to come, things that have not even happened yet. And so, the bulk of chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, is given to a long list of kings that will, in the future from Daniel's time, wage war against one another. It's, it's a ridiculously detailed prophecy, and there's plenty of fascinating details that, that read like something out of a history textbook that you might have used in school or something. These details talk about the near future from Daniel's day on into the far distant future and stretching on into eternity in chapter 12. In fact, what's revealed is, de- is a detailed blueprint and repeat of what was shown in symbols in Daniel chapter 7 and even Daniel chapter 8 with the beasts that came out of the sea in Daniel 7 and, and the, the ram and the goat again in chapter 8. This is talking about the Persian and the Greek empires that were to come. The Persian Empire's rise and fall lasts just one verse. So, look at verse 2. This summarizes approximately 200 years of history from Daniel's time in one verse. 
The Persians fell when they provoked the mighty king of Greece, who rose to dominate them and to do as he wills. That mighty king is Alexander the Great. Again, we've seen him before. He was the great horn that was on the goat. But just as soon as he rises, he falls, and his kingdom is divided to the four winds of heaven. This was like the the four heads of the leopard that we saw in the vision from Daniel 7. This was representing four generals that laid claim to uh, Alexander's great empire. And so his kingdom was divided. It wasn't as strong as it was with him as their leader. And so in chapter 11, verse 5 to 19, we read about these warring of these two kings, these two generals and their forces and those that came up after them. They're referred to as the king of the south and the king of the north. And these verses, like I said, they, they read like a detailed history textbook. The stories of wars between the Ptolemies in the south, that's the king of the south with the Ptolemies, they were located in Egypt. And then the Seleucids who were up in in the north, they were located in Syria. And so they were basically on either side of God's people trapped right in the middle. And so the, the people of Israel and Jerusalem were squashed, were sandwiched between two massive warring kingdoms. God's people were being repeatedly caught in the middle of huge fights. The level of detail that we read here in these verses has left many, many unbelieving and skeptical scholars to conclude that this could not have been written with the rest of Daniel or when Daniel lived. No, these things must have been written many, many years later because it's all taking place hundreds of years before. It's all being written hundreds of years before it actually happened, but the level of detail and specificity is so clearly Uh, directed to specific people and specific kings and specific battles. But to think that this was written after the fact as kind of a fake prophecy is just ridiculous, and it, it, it completely ignores one of the major themes of not only the Bible, but Daniel. That our God is the Lord of heaven and earth, that He's sovereign over the whole earth, He sets up kings and He tears them down. They're under His control. Not only are kings and kingdoms under His control, but fiery furnaces are under control and lions' mouths are under control and every single future event is under God's control. But Daniel chapter 11, in fact, doesn't even mention God throughout the whole chapter as acting directly. It never mentions God as acting here. But that's exactly the point as well. In in our lives, from our view, on this side of the curtain, it can seem as if God isn't even there. We can feel like in our day-to-day lives, like God's either abandoned us or He's ignoring us, we can even feel like when we consider all the disasters that happen in the world, I mean, COVID, for example, all the evils that are being done around the world, it's not just in one location, it's in every one of our homes that terrible things are happening. And we could be tempted with all this pain and sorrow and mourning, we could be tempted 
to think that God isn't there. That He's abandoned us, that He he can't possibly exist, in fact. Some people would use the terrible things that happen in history to say that a, a God can't exist. And yet, God sends His messenger right here, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12, to remind His people that He's in control of everything. That He's in control of our lives, your life, and my life. History is written in His book. Though everything might seem dark, God is working through all of it to accomplish His plans. How do we, how do we see that here in Daniel chapter 11? Well, look with me towards the end at verse 27. Look at the end of verse 27. It says, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And skip down a couple verses to verse 29. It says, at the appointed time he shall return. That's speaking about one of the kings traveling. Then at the end of verse 35, for it still awaits the appointed time. Appointed by who? Who is it that appoints the movements of kings and appoints the time of the end? It's God. God determines all these things. And look with me at the very end of verse 36 states it so clearly. What is decreed shall be done. God decrees or ordains or brings about all that He wills, and nothing can change it. What we're seeing here in the stories of these kings and kingdoms, the rise and fall, the fighting, the wars, is God's meticulous guidance over history. God is not, as some have speculated, a master watchmaker who puts all the parts of the universe together, winds it up, and lets it go and says, let's see what happens with it. No, God is intimately involved in every single detail of every single moment of all of history. One commentator puts it so well, God doesn't make educated guesses about the future. He decrees it. So why did God tell Daniel this? It's to remind Daniel and to remind us that he sits on the throne of the universe in unstoppable power. Our world is under God's rule. No matter how bad things appear to be, God is driving them all to His perfectly appointed ends. What we see here in the rise and fall of each of these various kings, what we see in them, though, is attempts to seize control by building forces, forging alliances, and flattery. All of these things are driven by a spirit of arrogance, a spirit of violence and oppression, and yet every one of these kings fails. Someone comes along with a bigger army, with a better scheme, and they fall 
one by one, each one of them. Their schemes will fail. Their plans will fail. The reality of God's sovereignty acts like a double-edged sword for the Christian life. On the one hand, God's sovereignty provides great comfort for us in the midst of the battle. And that's, that's why we just sang, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Here, being on the truth of God's ordained rightness, my stand will be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. Even if we die, we've not been forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all, and so to Him I leave it all. We surrender to His sovereignty and His purposes in our lives. Jesus taught that God's sovereign control even goes to the specificity of when a bird falls to the ground or the number of hairs that's on your head today. So God's sovereignty provides great comfort, but on the other hand, we must remember that God's sovereignty is something that we need to submit ourselves to. His reign, His rule, we must over and over again bow to His sovereignty. We must resign ourselves to it. We must say to Him, I leave it all. To Him, I leave it all. Our sinful bent ever since we were born and Satan's scheme for us ever since the beginning is to be like these kings, is to seek to rule our own little kingdoms, to seek to be the captains of our own destinies. It's not to submit to God's sovereignty. It's to rebel and rage against it. And so, ask yourselves, how are you tempted to try and seize control over the future for your life? It's, it's not wrong to make plans. It's not wrong to think about our futures, but often we do so in an attempt to try and seize control of our lives in such a way that only belongs to God. So consider, are you tempted to trust in your own plans? Are you tempted like these kings to try and amass more and more things to guard you, to protect you, to control and to secure your future. Just like them, it won't work. Are you tempted to manipulate others, to control, to oppress, to push and force others to do what you want, to control them, to get a leg up maybe? It won't work, and it doesn't honor God. Repent. In verses 21 through 35, the intensity of the pressures and the persecution from these warring kings on God's people escalates, and there arises a particularly horrible king. He's identified as a contemptible or despicable person. We've seen this person before. This is the little horn of chapter 8, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanies, which meant God manifest, God revealed. But his enemies called him Epimenes, which meant the mad one, 
because he was known for his violent rage. His violence was so terrible. He, he doesn't only use brute force, though. He's also crafty. He devised plots and plans against people. He double-crossed them. He seduced his enemies, and he bribed them. He particularly hated God's people, the Jews, and we see that in verses 31 through 35. He conquered Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He set up an idol of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and he slaughtered a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of God. This is what is referred to as the abomination that makes desolate. And he even seduced some of God's own people, the Jews, to abandon the Lord. We see that in verse 32, to align themselves with Him. But the people who know the Lord, those who knew their God, were those who stood firm and take action. Many would stumble, many would fall by the sword or plagues, or others would be burned But verse 35 tells us, why does God ordain? Why does He allow such persecution and such hardship to face His people? Look at the end of verse 35. He says, so that they may be refined and purified and made white. Persecution and hardship has the effect of driving away those who don't really know God those who would maybe claim to know God as soon as hardship comes or persecution comes, they leave. It drives them away. But it it also has the effect of driving true believers into deeper dependence and greater faithfulness to their God. God uses the flames of trials and persecution in the lives of His people to burn away the dross, that is, the impurities of sin, and and to make them purer, to make them more glorious. That's how they, uh, they purify precious metals like gold and silver. They put it in the fire. They burn away the impurities. And that's what God intends for His people as they face suffering and persecution and warfare in the world. When you face difficulties, when you face persecution or trials and pain in your life, you should ask yourself, is the Lord, what is the Lord trying to show me through this? What is He trying to teach me? What temptations and sins in my heart are being revealed by this trial? How might God be seeking to purify me, to make me depend on Him more, to flee from sin, and to trust more deeply in what Christ has done for me? The final verses of chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, they don't fit nearly as well as the rest does with what happened in history. It doesn't fit with the life of Antiochus IV, although we do see the same despicable spirit, the same violence against God's people. And so many see here a glimpse of not Antiochus and the Greek Empire, but looking forward towards Antichrists and the Antichrist at the end of the world. This king, he's just called the king at first, he does whatever he wills. He exalts himself above every god. He blasphemes the one true God. He magnifies himself above all. He worships his own power and his own might. And in the end, he conquers, plunders, murders, destroys. Tens of thousands fall before him. He goes about with great fury. But look at verse 45, the very end of chapter 11. 
after all his destruction and his power, he too shall come to his end with none to help him. Even he can't stand before the Lord and win. He'll conquer his enemies, but he won't conquer the Lord. The Lord will conquer him, and he'll bring about his appointed ends. Which is our third and final point, God's appointed end. We see this in chapter 12, God's appointed end. Chapter 12 lays out God's plan for the end of the world. Following this time of intense persecution and escalating wickedness, God will finally defeat, conquer His enemies, and deliver His people. Even death won't stop Him. Look at verses 2 and 3. In the end, He'll reverse death. He'll undo it. He'll raise the dead from the dust, and there will be a division on that day. There's only two groups that will stand then. Those that have been raised to everlasting life and those who have been raised to everlasting shame and contempt. God has decreed an end for His faithful people and He's rescued them for eternal life. And He did this by sending forth His Son. Jesus came to save us from death which is the result of sin. He gave Himself as an offering to give us eternal life, to free us from shame and contempt that we so rightfully deserve because of our sin. It was at the cross that God delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places When Christ died at the cross, He put those forces to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, we're told in the New Testament. God defeated sin and death by offering His only Son as a payment for sin. And Christ, by His resurrection from the dead, secures our victory from death as well. Friends, if you aren't a believer, how do you feel about the fact that one day God's appointed end will come and you will stand before the Lord to give an account for all that you've done? But there's hope. There's still hope. That day has not yet come. You can even now bow your knee to the King of Kings. You can trust in His saving death, His resurrection, which will be our resurrection. And you too can be raised to shine like the stars of the heavens. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Bow your knee before His sovereignty today. But brothers and sisters, do you see there in chapter 12 that those who are wise will not only follow God for themselves, but they'll devote themselves to turning others to the righteousness of God, the righteousness that is theirs through faith in Christ. And so let's strive to be a church that works to lead others to this righteousness in Christ Jesus, to put their faith and trust in Him. Let's be about that work together. The final verses of the whole book answer the questions, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? And what will be their outcome? We're told that the man in linen, maybe Christ, 
who was there above the river, swears, raising both hands to the heavens and proclaims that it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half times. And then two figures are given that are 12, uh, sorry, 1,290 days and 1,335 days. Strange numbers, but each that almost adds up to about three and a half years. And what we see here is that the point is that these days will not last forever. The time is limited. And those days of persecution and trial and pain and suffering are numbered. And God will come back and He'll save His people. And in the meantime, the man encourages Daniel to simply go his way. To keep trusting, to keep remaining faithful, and to carry on. So how do we fit all this together? How do we fit these three chapters in this vast vision that we've seen covering hundreds of years, angelic forces and conflicts, and God's appointed end? How do, what do we learn from Daniel's final vision? We learn that our warfare will be long and painful. But in the end, our God will defeat all enemies, even death, and will be raised to stand with Him in victory. That's the lesson we learn from Daniel's final vision, that our warfare will be long, it will be painful, it won't be easy, it won't be fun, but in the end, our God will defeat all of His enemies, even death, and will be raised to stand with Him in victory. So, what is wrong with our world? And what is the solution? Well, I love the way that D.A. Carson answers this question. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If He had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician if he'd perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin. It involved our alienation from God. It involved our profound rebellion. And it involved our death. And he sent us a Savior who would raise us from the dead. Brothers and sisters, a spiritual battle is being waged and we're at the heart of it. You're not insignificant. You're part of God's plan. You're part of His forces. But God has ordained its end and He's acted to save it and to secure it. And so, brothers and sisters, hang in there. Hang in. Our lives, like our Savior's, will be marked by hardship. They'll be marked by suffering and pain and sorrow. But victory is never in doubt. And God's final words to Daniel are true for every believer. Look at the final verse. He says, You shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. We'll stand in the allotted place. We'll stand in Christ in victory. Let that hope spur you on to faithfulness as you wait for God's appointed end. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you praise for you are our sovereign Lord. You're in control of all things. You're bringing about all things according to your perfect plan. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for the battle that we face. We pray that you'd hold us fast until the end. We pray that you'd keep our eyes fixed on the glory that will be ours when your appointed end comes, when your Son comes back to claim us all, to raise us all. We pray that you would do these things for your name's sake, that you may be glorified in us today. In Christ's name, amen.